when you ask about our legacy, it's something that we'll be processing for as long as humanity goes on. You know, I mean, there's just so much of it in terms of the volume of it and in terms of how her legacy will live on through various students and, and collaborators. Welcome to Sonosphere, the podcast that explores the sounds all around us in art and music movements through history. We're your hosts. I'm Amy. And I'm Chris. Today, we reflect on the prolific life of Pauline Oliveros. Oliveros left a lasting legacy as a teacher, composer, and advocate that, as Tara Rogers stated, will take a long time to process. From an early age, she was fascinated with sound. Oliveros adapted to technology at a furious pace throughout her life. When I discovered Pauline Oliveros, the sonic world changed. I approached sound from a place that I had never imagined. The world came to life. I learned to accept sounds and music as they came to me, not getting distracted by distant noise, but accepting it as part of the greater whole. When I first discovered Pauline, it was through her deep listening and meditation work. I was trying to find some peace when I was going through a tough time with the passing of my grandmother a few years ago. The way she approached listening as a sort of meditation and therapy through her deep listening institutes inspired me to get her book and go through some of it. Her curiosity for music and sound was refreshing, and I was blown away by her expanded instrument system and her passion to help individuals with disabilities find their musical abilities. I was also encouraged by her work to improve awareness of and fight for women composers to be included in concert and symphony programs. Through the process of creating this episode even, I was so moved by these awesome composers we talked to, telling us their experience knowing and learning from Pauline. Here's a recollection of Pauline's life and work through Claire Chase, Wu Fei, Monique Bazarte, Carrie O'Brien, and Tara Rogers. I hope you enjoy. I'm Tara Rogers. I'm a musician and electronic music composer. I also study the history of electronic music, and I share that work in writings and digital projects and public lectures. Pauline is one of a kind, um, truly irreplaceable. I, I was fortunate to meet her as a student when I was doing my MFA at Mills College and taking her deep listening seminar in I guess, 2003, I think. That's also when I interviewed her for Pink Noises.
Blair flutist and an advocate for new and experimental and weird music. Uh, Pauline is one of the most important people in my life, and I actually knew her from the time that I was I was a baby. My mother was singing in her extended vocal techniques class at UC San Diego when my mother was pregnant with me. So in a sense, you could say that I've known Pauline since before I was born. And she's just been a luminous and generous and guiding presence in my life and in, in thousands of people's lives. I mean, the number of people who've been touched by this woman, by her generosity and, and by her vision and philosophy of music is just, it's astounding. I still very much feel her here with us. My name is Monique Buzarte, and I'm a trombonist and composer. I live in New York, and I have been influenced by Pauline for the last, oh dear, 35 years. Well, I came across her music when I was a teenager in Davis, California, and ended up working as an undergraduate with Stuart Dempster, who was her very close friend and the trombonist in the Deep Listening Band. So I went to become a new music trombonist in Seattle, Washington, at the University of Washington, not quite realizing that the world wasn't clamoring for a new music trombonist at the time. But I did work with Stuart, and through Stuart, met Pauline, and got more involved in her work.
my name is Wu Fei, and I'm originally from Beijing, and now I live in Nashville. I am a classically trained composer and a guzheng player and a vocalist. No, it's really changed my life, completely shifted my life from before I thought I was going to get a PhD and become a professor, and that's like the highest, the furthest I could see from my culture that I was told. Pauline Oliveros, she was my main teacher the last semester I was there, and also my uh, main reader uh, of my thesis. She was fascinated by, by all the new developments in science and astrology. I mean, Pauline was one of the most technologically savvy and social media savvy people that I've ever worked with. I, I think Pauline was probably the first person to, uh, to ask me to Google Hangout when Google Hangout wasn't even, wasn't even a thing yet. And I was like, wow, I'm going to Google Hangout with my 81-year-old friend who's in Hong Kong right now. One hugely important aspect of her legacy is as a music technologist with her development of the expanded instrument system, her accordion playing, and also her work on the adaptive use musical instrument project to develop instruments and music making possibilities for people with disabilities. And these were not small endeavors, right? These are things that she worked on and refined, sometimes on her own, sometimes I think with, with collaborators, you know, over many years. Part of her curiosity with listening was, was the technological aspect. She talked about the early days of listening to radio and the kind of in-between channels, the crazy sounds that were coming through and the, you know, with a wire recorder in the early days. So her whole career really paralleled so many technological changes in the history of electronic music. She was really living that history, but I think it's a testament to her openness to new things, her dedication to learning new things that she continued to evolve. You know, not every artist evolves with the times and in the way that she did. She worked for years on this extraordinary instrument called the Expanded Instrument System. She worked, I think, for 40 years on it. It was one of the most sophisticated and one of the earliest electronic instruments that would enable real-time and very complex, you know, multi-dimensional improvisations with live musicians in such a way. I mean, she described it as kind of improvising with a with a much more highly evolved, <laughs> maybe extraterrestrial version of yourself. You could imagine a human being who has several hundred times your ability and virtuosity. That the expanded instrument system is like improvising with that future version of yourself. And she was, as, you know, she was imagining this from 1965 until her last breathing moment. I can attest to this. I mean, I improvised with her and with the system. She calls it EIF. And, and it was one of the most illuminating experiences of my life and one of the most challenging. I mean, you're simply outplayed by this machine who's listening and responding and remembering and embellishing. I don't know any musician who is more adaptable and more open and more malleable than Pauline. And yet at all moments, that malleability is grounded by this woman who knew exactly who she was and never strayed from her inner vision and from her principles and from being totally committed, no matter what, to taking risks and experimenting and being herself, encouraging other people to, to do the same.
the patch, the expanded instrument system software that Pauline developed throughout the course of her lifetime is this work with delays where you're playing in the present, making sounds that are going to come into being in the future, <laughs> at which point it will all be in the past. <laughs> so you're in these three places all at once, all the time. Her particular patch for that was really sweet because it had, oh, I don't know how many hundreds of different variables. And so they became metaparameters because, you know, our brains can't really deal with hundreds of choices at once. So there were metaparameters. Parameters would be attached to one parameter. And they were really very sweet. You know, it's kind of the psychological state. Are you flexible? Or are you less flexible? <laughs> and so as you're changing different things, the patch can kind of go wild if you're really flexible and less wild if you're not so flexible. <laughs> and there were, I can't uh, have to look at the patch, which I probably can't open up now anymore because software has changed. But there were, there were seven different types of things like that. And it was very, very psychological to me because it was all about how you one approaches things. <laughs> So I think of patches as actually scores. And so you have the composer's ideas that are then translated by a programmer, right, into the details, and then someone can use that patch. But essentially, when people use patches, they're actually playing a score. So even though I was creating the sounds and 
you know, creating them, you know, composing them, creating them, performing them. The patch really was Pauline's and was part of the ICE expanded instrument system that she had worked on continuously for, I don't know, 1880s to, to now. Her writings in the collection software for people, the writings from 1963 to 80 are materials that I always go back to as a historian and also when I have an opportunity to teach, I often teach some of those texts as well. So essays are writings like sound observations, poetics with environmental sound, the sonic meditations. And for me, it's certainly about her philosophy of listening, but it's also an interesting model of sound writing, right? Like how to write about sound in a way that is so imaginative, and but also publicly accessible and very much about engaging other listeners as, as kind of participants in the process. I think that's one of the most radical things about Pauline's work. Yeah, my name's Carrie O'Brien. She taught electronic music. She moved to San Diego. She continued teaching electronic music, but then she just started doing these pieces where all you need is your body or just to be walking around. And the great thing, actually, about moving away from electronics is that anybody could do it. You didn't have to go to school for it or know how to do anything. You could just teach your brother how to do it. Or And, and the notion of inclusivity is really big in these kinds of pieces. She... She said, you know, she was trying to compose for uh, ear-minded people, that she wanted to, um, you know, walk as though your feet become ears. Like, And then these sonic meditations, they end up just being practice. Like, practice uh, listening a certain way, approaching the world a certain way, and then go out and live your life that way. wrote it, these sonic meditations, she gathered with a group, first only of women, and they would perform the pieces and then take notes and journal about it and see how they felt. And then they'd do it again, and then they'd take notes. And they did this weekly for a number of years. And the whole idea is that it changes you. Like, you take notes because you're noticing how it affects you. That is so different from going to a concert and you're like, oh, that was cool. <laughs> or like, I like that, I didn't like that. She really meant for this music to be to transform you, to be different afterwards. And I think like that's a legacy that is untouched as far as I know it. undergraduate do a deep listening workshop with uh, you know a few hundred music educators and she did teach herself to fly and I thought my gosh here's this person taking these you know not real hip folks and making these fantastic sounds with them and I had met her again in San Francisco but we didn't become more personally 
affiliated until the late 90s. I was very fortunate to be in her deep listening class for the last semester, and uh, we did a wonderful like qigong practice. And now I realize like she wanted ourselves to tune each other in the same energy before even going to any intellectual world. Is just like when you tune your instrument for play. So we tune our energy together, and so beautiful. I think deep listening is a practice and there's a life practice. It's not just in music. Mm -hmm. It's in being, interactions with people in one's own creative potential in centeredness and groundedness. For me, it gave kind of a framework of things that I think I was doing and had, but it gave a, a kind of a container for them and let me develop them more explicitly. You know, for example you know, reaction time, mm -hmm. you know, how many milliseconds do we react in? And whatever we do, can we react a little faster? And in body work or Tai Chi or something, whatever we do, can we do that slower in performing? I mean, there's so many, there's no limits. And this would be, you know, Pauline Alvarez to a T, limitless, mm -hmm. no boundaries. Everything is possible. It's very profound. You know, when I started taking a deep listening, I felt the instant connection to it. I recognize a lot of the sound and the philosophy from my own culture back in China. The meditative aspect of it is the sound of a singing bowl or something. Reminding me of the temples that I grew up. There's like every day we hear some bong for like a big bells. Just instantly reminding my childhood and how we want to cleanse our mind before we could open up the ears. I recognize something that's from the Chinese ancient philosophy or from the Buddhism. When I was a kid, I considered myself as an international and kind of rebel against my own culture. You know, that's why every young person in teens had to go through. But once I started taking a deep listening, I started to realize the profound part of my culture started appreciate it. I said, wow, this is really working. Our world is noisy. And noise, not in a pejorative sense of noise, but it's a lot of stimulus. And one core tenet and practice of this deep listening is being able to hold simultaneously um, things that might be perceived as opposites. For example, local listening and global listening. So can you hear the, the entirety of the sound? At the same time, can you pick out one part of it? And can you go back and forth fluidly? And can you hold them both simultaneously? And can you change the, the relative strengths of each up and down? I mean, that's like it's an incredible skill set. And it's something that can be learned, something that can be practiced. And through the introduction with Pauline, I ended up doing some work at the deep listening retreats that were held at that time in New Mexico. 
and became a Deposuian certificate holder. So from then on, since 1997, Pauline's been a very, very important part of my life. Yeah, actually, I had um, had made some inquiries for a friend of mine who was living in Germany at the time. And after doing that, I thought, you know, I should really do this myself. And it's one of the scariest things I think I've ever done. But it changed my life in such a fundamental way that I was hooked. I mean, really, really hooked. And so I completed a three-year certification process. And at that time, Mel Pauling was living in Kingston, and I was living in New York. And so I would go up to the deepest room space at the time and play around with the machines and spend time there. I mean, it really became, um, it, it changed my life in very fundamental ways. Not just my own life, but uh, the kind of music I was doing. I had never composed before, and I started composing. I had never done much improvisation before, and Pauline kind of threw me into a quintet with herself and Joe McPhee and Dominic Duvall, and I just kind of went with it. And, I mean, so really changed kind of my focus from being a new music trombonist to working in this live processing and working extensively with improvisation. There's no middle ground for my experience, just extremes, and just extremes. I struggled when I discovered improvisation, or even a simple question like, why do you write music? I was like, because I was told to. <laughs> For 20, more than 20 years, should I be called a composer? But I really, I was kind of just really shocked. Your belief system 
I felt I either I have betrayed someone or I was betrayed by entirety from the beginning that was just misled to trying to do something that I had no clue either it should be for myself. After that, I, I guess I was just so desperate that, you know, when someone sees no way out and then I just turn around like, you know, screw it, I would just jump, I would jump the cliff now because there's no other way. I mean, that's how I felt, I felt liberated. I realized the craft is not going away. But you don't need to have more craft. You need to drop it and to find your own voice. I was given all the vocabularies in the language, but not knowing how to express what I want to say. So with like piling all these fancy terms, and then like, what are you talking about? What is your point? So I found my point. It was a change of who I was inside of myself. And I think all changes is tricky, right? And all changes frightening. And and I would always kind of liken it to feeling as if I was stepping off a cliff. But I never fell, ever. I would just step off the cliff and go into some new place. An aspect of her listening philosophy that I think is really meaningful to me definitely came through in her mentoring. I mean, this is something that maybe not everyone knows, although I think it's become more widely discussed after her passing, since that Pauline's mentoring of the younger generation was like an extension of her deep listening practice and that she was very attentive, available, generous. I wasn't someone who worked closely with her, but I was able to turn to her at certain moments in my career when I felt like she was someone who would have real unique insights and advice. Oh, I will never forget is right before I graduated, I was in a big confusion where I want to go, what's the next step, you know, it just can be super intense. I was like, oh my God, now I really have to make the world instead of like, you know, just writing papers or practicing. So Pauli, I, I wrote to her, I was like, can I just chat with you, I'm just in a big confusion. And she said, oh yeah, why don't you meet at the big rock on campus and let's just chat. So we had this wonderful chat about, I don't even remember what exactly I asked her. It was just a beautiful afternoon. It was like one or two hours of just talking about life. And it has nothing to do with music. When the conversation was ended, I felt like, okay, I know what I'm gonna do.
I, I worked with her, started working with her formally and professionally when, when I started ICE. She was the, the first official board member of ICE back when we didn't really know what a board was. <laughs> so ICE is a 35-member artist collective. We were formed in, in 2000-2001 when a group of Oberlin students got together and decided to create a new program of music to celebrate, you know, like a good time to celebrate and think about what we might be doing with our lives in the year 2000. Pauline loved the idea and was supportive of, of this notion that a group of young people would get together and make music on their own terms and, and support one another's work and produce concerts in unusual venues and uh, and and basically just write our own rule book. She loved that idea, and and she was the first one to sign on and say yes. She was also the first person to write the ensemble a piece of music in the year 2000, which really was the touchstone and the impetus for creating the organization. Pauline wrote uh, a piece for us called Elemental Gallop. The piece is, is now published in, in her anthology of text scores. And uh, which is an absolutely wonderful com compilation of hundreds of text scores that she's written for various people over the years. So we started working together that way. And, you know, over the last 15 years, she's just become a closer and closer friend and chosen family member, both of mine and, and of the ICE communities at large. People, people thought we were crazy in the early days. And I think a lot of people still think we're crazy for opening up uh, nearly half of our programming to the public for free. And what we discovered was that by giving more concerts and making them free and open to the public, we actually increased our, our donor base and volunteer base and eventually foundations and even some corporations were excited about funding us because we were reaching so many people and because we didn't have that barrier to entry. Um, you know, on shoestring budgets, nobody got paid for the first four or five seasons. Um, but we did a ton of, of work. We staged festivals. We produced operas. Um, we passed the hat every time we played at a local bar. Um, and, and ICE created a name for itself in Chicago in those early days by just doing things that we wanted to do and doing them in unusual ways and in unusual spaces. It, most importantly, promote the work of composers and artists who are working in between disciplines and genres and whose work is not yet given the recognition and support that it deserves. And we like to think of ourselves as, you know, on, on a great day finding, finding the future Pauline Oliveros's of the world by working with a first grade class. And that's something that we don't see symphony orchestras doing. So as a nonprofit performing arts collective, that's something that's extremely important for us to, I would say, lead from within, lead by doing. That's absolutely something that, that she infused in, in, in me personally and in the philosophy of ICE generally. Um, you know, we spoke earlier about her anthology of text scores, which is this tremendous volume of of works of hers spanning several decades. You know, there are so many ways that she could have gotten that work out there. She could have 
copyrighted every single one of those text pieces. <laughs> she could have sold them as art pieces at auction and made millions of dollars. She elected to make that volume basically publicly available in a book so that anybody who buys that book can have these pieces on their coffee table and perform them with their children or at a dinner party or in a concert hall or an opera house or anywhere in the world. And that, that spirit of, of sharing um, is, it's, 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 it's so inspiring and it's been a huge part of her legacy and her teaching. Very few faculty uh, to this day, let's say in the U.S. at least, in music technology and electronic music composition academic departments who even say words like gender, sexuality, race, you know, let alone, um, you know, live their lives in a way that's outwardly supportive of changing the fact that these fields are still very white, straight, male-dominated. And so Pauline was a real kind of like a magnet for those of us who are committed to changing those fields. And I think she made herself available as a mentor to many of us. That's something that I try to take away from her example and, and carry that forward whenever I have a chance. And then there was kind of a period of time between probably 1983 until 1997 when I or actually 1996, when I um, coordinated a advocacy effort to have women be able to be members of the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra. And I needed some kind of headliner people to handle the, well, to get the press's attention. And I thought of Pauline right away. And I emailed a whole bunch of people, and she was the first person that got back to me within minutes, actually. And the only one at that time willing to go on record and issue a statement that then I could use and get other people to kind of come on board.
She was not shy about expressing her opinions. And yet Pauline would always lead with the work. You know, she wasn't somebody who ever got embroiled in identity politics. You know, she would make her statements. She made her famous statement to the New York Times about don't call them lady composers. And she would make statements, but she would she would always say what she wanted to say. And she would say it very succinctly and boldly without any reservation. And then she would lead by making new work and by setting an example. She will be recognized for the force that she was both in the 20th century and the 21st century as one of the most influential thinkers and makers of our time. I don't know that she necessarily received all of that deserved recognition in her lifetime because she was outside of the mainstream and outside of the establishments and she wasn't white and she wasn't a man and she wasn't straight and did things her own way and was committed to being an independent artist too, um, which is no small feat in these times. Pauline's work being so publicly accessible and community-oriented is one of its really inspiring features. When you look at the history of electronic music, past and through the present, there aren't that many people who were kind of all out committed to doing the things on multiple fronts that she did. Composition and performance and music technology development to the history and philosophy of sound and listening. And in Pauline's case, also having a kind of community-based or political dimension to at least some of the work. She was like a real strong inspiration uh, as someone who did all of that and also with such generosity and perseverance. Because doing work that crosses boundaries and, and challenges traditions, which she did her whole life, and also doing that as a feminist and as an out lesbian, especially in years when that wasn't necessarily as common or as accepted as it is now in many places. You know, that's not without its challenges, but she persisted and, and thrived. And I think for me and, and for so many others, you know, that was a real inspiration.
This has been an independent production of Sonosphere, produced by Amy S. and Chris Williams. Check us out at sonospherepodcast.com. Subscribe on iTunes and check us out on SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.